knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we started looking at Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency demonstrated in our fellowship with other believers. And in these verses, Paul focuses on three main things. And uh, the first two things we looked at last week, first Paul focuses on the three positions that God has given us that should not only motivate us, but it also enables us to do these challenges that we are given. We are the elect of God. We are holy. We are beloved. And then second, Paul focused on eight godly qualities that we should put on that really demonstrate to us how to treat other believers in a godly way. We need to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing, and forgiving. And the most important of all, the one that Paul says, put over all things, kind of that belt that holds it all together, is love. So those are the first two things that we looked at last week. And this morning, we're going to focus on the third thing that Paul deals with here. And that's four godly principles that we should let into our life that are going to practically help us treat other believers in a godly way. So if you want a good relationship with other believers in Christ, then these four principles are essential things that you apply and put into practice. And so Paul shares these four principles in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. It says this, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first thing that Paul tells us is to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Now, the Greek word here, translated peace, means a tranquil state, to have harmony and concord between individuals, to join or bind together that which has been separated, exemption from havoc or war. And, you know, when we think of peace, we think of all sorts of different things, and I'm sure all sorts of things come to mind. But Paul is speaking of a specific peace. He's not just throwing out this general concept, you know, let, 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 let there be peace in a general way in your heart. No, he, he's focusing on something specific. He says, the peace of God. Uh, that, that's the kind of peace that you need to let be in your heart. Let that peace of God. Now, the peace of God greatly impacts everything, but especially two vital relationships that each one of us have. The first and most important relationship that the peace of God impacts is our relationship with God. You see, before you and I accepted Christ, we had no peace and we had no relationship. 
for that matter, uh, with God. We were at war with God. We were going to receive God's judgment. We were going to receive the wrath of God. We were, you know, on a track headed to eternity and hell. But once we accepted Christ, that war with God, it ended. And now we're in this wonderful position of peace. We have this peaceful relationship with the Lord. We're no longer going to receive His judgment. We're no longer going to receive His wrath. We're no longer His enemies. Now we are His children. So the first relationship that the peace of God impacts is our relationship with God But we also need to understand there's another relationship the peace of God greatly impacts, and that's our relationship with other people. You know, when you look at the history of mankind, we have spent a lot of time warring with one another. We've spent a lot of time trying to destroy and kill other people. But you know what? There's something that happens within us. When we accept Jesus Christ, there is this not only desire, but this enabling of God to now live at peace with others when at one time we just kind of wanted to be at war with those, especially those who we felt were our enemies, those we felt you know didn't see things the way that we did, whatever it was. you know We weren't willing to be at peace with them, but all of a sudden we have this relationship with Jesus and it brings peace in our relationships with others. But you know what? The most important group, the one that really should be the easiest to be at peace with, are other believers. You know, And I understand it can be hard to be at peace with people, especially those who are your enemies, those who have, you know, they're coming against you and what you believe and, and want to kind of undermine and destroy that. But, you know, the group that we should have peace with the most are those that we have the most important thing in common with, which is our relationship with Christ. You know, the group of believers are those that we should have peace with. But sadly, in the body of Christ, it's full of sinful people, like me, like you. And because we're a bunch of sinners, that there are things that we do to one another, say to one another, that make peace sometimes a difficult thing. One church wrote in their bulletin, Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Now that bulletin was written poorly. That's not ultimately the message that they were trying to put out. But sadly, it's a message that's sometimes accurate among the body of Christ. That we are out to kind of destroy one another sometimes. That there's not peace oftentimes in relationships like there should be. Instead, we're we're at war. God wants there to be peace. Especially among his children. We are the children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And and the Lord is our Father. And you know what? Any of you who are parents, I'm confident that when you look at your kids, behave with one another, you want there to be peace among them. You know, I don't like it when I see Scarlett and Eden, you know, fighting with one another, shouting at one another, angry with one another. I want there to be peace in their relationship. I want them to love each other. And, and their lack of peace influences me. It impacts me. I don't, I don't like that reality. And in the same way, the Lord doesn't like it. When His children, us, can't get along, can't treat each other with love, can't have peace in our relationships with one another. Now notice what Paul tells us to do with the peace of God. He says, let it rule in your hearts. This word rule here, this Greek word translated rule, it's a very interesting word. It means to be an umpire, to decide or make a ruling, to arbitrate. You know, in the game of baseball, you have umpires. It's the role of the umpire to make 
rulings in the game. They rule whether a pitch is a ball or a strike. They rule whether a hit is foul or fair. They rule whether a runner is safe or out. But you know, we don't always agree with the umpire's decision, especially if they make a decision that goes against the team that we support. But you know what? Umpires are very important to the game of baseball because without them, there would be chaos. There would be war. Without an umpire, it would be left up to the teams to make these rulings. The teams would have to rule whether it was a ball or a strike, whether a runner was safe or, or out, whether a ball that was hit was fair or foul. You know, when I was younger, I played baseball for fun with my friends, and, you know, we didn't have umpires. And because of that, we got into a lot of fights. You know, you're running to first base, and they're throwing the ball, and it's super close, and you're convinced you're safe, and, you know, the first baseman's convinced you're out, and you're shouting at each other, and I'm safe, no, you're out, or, you know, someone's throwing a pitch, and you think it's a ball, and they think it's a strike, and, you know, of course, the, the other team's always going to think that what they're doing's right, and you're always going to think that what you're doing's right, and, and now you have this conflict because you don't have a third party that's going to rule and say, no, it was a ball, or a strike, or you're safe, or you're out, But then all of a sudden, this same group, sometimes we even quit playing because it got so heated. But then we go at school, we'd have PE, and for a portion of the year, we'd play baseball, and the PE teacher was now the umpire. And so now all of a sudden, the ball is thrown across the plate, and maybe, you know, I would think it's a strike, and the other think it was a ball, but it didn't really matter because we had an umpire who would make the ruling, and the game could continue because now we had someone else ruling, and it kept peace within the game. So what Paul is saying is let the peace of God rule. Let it be the umpire in your heart. Now the next thing that Paul says shows that the focus of this peace really is in our relationship with other believers. Sometimes this verse is kind of used just to speak of a personal peace for us, but really in the context that's not really what it's referring to. Notice Paul says, to which also you were called in one body. You know, as believers, we are one body. Paul uses this picture often of kind of a a physical body to to give us an illustration of, of the body of Christ that we have. But notice he says that we're called to peace. That's something that God has called us as the body of Christ too, that, that we should be living in peace with one another. And you know what? It's a great illustration because if your physical body is at war with itself, you got problems. You know, if there's certain parts of your body warring against other parts of your body, your body's not going to function properly. It's going to have serious issues. And in the same way, the body of Christ, when it's at war with one another, when it's not at peace the way that it's supposed to be, it brings significant problems to the body of Christ. So in our relationship with other believers, when there's a ruling that needs to be made, when there's some kind of conflict that you have, when you're arguing or fighting over something, the challenge that Paul's saying here is let the peace of God be that umpire. Let that make the ruling in the situation. Kent Hughes wrote this, How much misery we would avoid if we permitted the peace of Christ to umpire in our hearts. How many words we would hold back if he were the arbitrator in our lives, how many sleepless nights we would forego if we did that, how the church needs this, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. You know, when differences, when conflicts threaten the unity of the body of Christ, the peace of Christ needs to be accepted as 
the empire and arbitrator. We should always desire peace in our relationship with one another. But we should do more than just desire peace. Notice that Paul says, let it rule. This is a choice that you make. You let something happen or you don't let something happen. You're in that position now where I can say, I'm going to let the peace of God rule in this relationship or I'm going to choose not to let the peace of God rule in this relationship. And so there's an issue. There's a problem. And you guys are trying to deal with it. And you have choices to make. And there's certain choices that you're going to make that's going to hinder peace. And there's other choices that you can make that could promote peace. And ultimately what Paul is sharing is, hey, let the peace of God be the umpire. Let it rule. When you have that choice, always go with peace. Always be, let that be the thing that drives it instead of the things that hinder it. Focus on the things that promote it. You know, there's been many times in my marriage with Jenny where we've had conflict. And I have chosen trying to prove that I was right over trying to ultimately have peace. And I think oftentimes we look at relationships and we choose other things opposed to peace. And in the moment we think, well, this is most important, being right, or this is most important, whatever it is that you've chosen in that moment. And sometimes even in the moment you think, oh, yes, now this was great. Look at me. I've proven or tried to prove whatever. But in the bigger picture, you start to realize it's not worth it. Peace is far more valuable. And so often we pursue things that lead to war instead of to peace. And so Paul's challenge is for us not to do that. So the first godly principle we should let into our life that practically can help us treat other believers in a godly way is let the peace of God rule in your heart. But how do we practically do that? You know, hey, that's great. Okay, I know that I should do more of this, but but what can I practically do to let the peace of God rule in my heart? Well, there's there's a couple things that I think are are great practical things we can do. One of them is shared with us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. If you want to let the peace of God rule in your heart, well, how do I practically do that? Well, let me say one thing. Getting anxious, getting worried, that's the last thing you want to do. You know, getting all stressed out over things, that that just hinders peace. Well, Well, then what do I do in its place? Pray. That's the essential thing. That's such a practical thing that we can do. Well, well, how do I you know, get peace in this situation where I have another person and they've done this against me or I've done this against them and we have this conflict, this argument, whatever it may be. You know, well, what can we do to, to help this peace exist? You need to pray. And I think this is something that's just so practical that oftentimes, you know, if we would just stop, stop the arguing and just pray, pray with one another, pray for one another. The peace that God brings in that is just a wonderful thing, but too often we're not willing to pray and we lose out on peace because of it. Another practical thing that we can do to help let the peace of God rule is in what Paul tells us here at the end of verse 15. He says, be thankful. The Greek word translated thankful means to be grateful and appreciative of something and someone. You know, you and I have so much to be thankful for. 
especially when we look at all that God has done for us. But you know, one of the greatest things that we should appreciate, that we should constantly be thankful for, is what God has done to make peace possible between us and Him. You know, we think of peace and, and the importance of peace. You know, think of what God was willing to do in order to make peace with you something that could actually be attainable. You didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. He did it all. He was willing to sacrifice himself on a cross so that peace between us could be possible. And so often, we're willing to do so very little to make peace happen. You know, we're so, 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 well, if I got to do that, there's no way I'm doing that or this. But we just realized, man, look what God has done. And we should be so grateful for what he's done. And when we stay focused on that, when we remember that, man, it should influence us in a great way to be willing to demonstrate and do whatever it takes to show peace to others. Matthew Henry wrote this, To preserve in us this peaceable disposition, we must be thankful. The work of thanksgiving to God is such a sweet and pleasant work that it will help to make us sweet and pleasant towards all men. So the first godly principle we should let into our life that's going to practically help us just treat other people in a godly way is let the peace of God rule in your heart. And you can practically do that through prayer and through thanks, thanksgiving. The second principle that God gives us is uh, in verse 16. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Once again, Paul uses this term, let. Say, hey, there's another choice you can make. I've just told you to make a choice to, to let peace rule. Well, now I'm going to tell you to make a choice to do something else. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. The Greek word translated dwell means to reside, to live, to make your home in a place, to be given the control of a house. So Paul is saying that we need to let the, the word of Christ, the, the word of God, reside in our lives, that we should live in the Word just like we live in our home. You know, you and I are most likely very familiar with every aspect of our home, the, the living room and the, the bedroom and the bathroom and the closets. And, you know, the longer that we've lived there, the more that we come very familiar with our surroundings. And in the same way, we need to live in the Word of God. Let the Word of God make its home in our life that we are very familiar with, it, that we know every aspect of it. Now, Paul gives us two specific ways that we should let the Word of Christ dwell in us. First, he says, do it richly. And second, in all wisdom. The Greek word translated richly means something of great value in large amounts, extravagance, lavishness. God's Word is one of the most valuable things that you and I could ever have. And so we need to let it dwell in our life in a large, extravagant amount. And I think so sadly, you know, we just, uh, many Christians, there's just a, a very little amount of God's Word that they've really let penetrate their life, that they let dwell in their life. It's like, well, you know, I have this, this wonderful verse here and, and that great verse that I know there. And, and that's wonderful that you have that much, but there's so much more. And it's saying, hey man, this is so valuable that I want to allow it all to impact and affect my life. 
every area of my life. So the first way we should let the Word of Christ dwell in us is richly. The second way is in all wisdom. The Greek word translated wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. So when God's Word is dwelling in us, the knowledge of God's Word is richly in us. It's in a large, extravagant amount. That's a wonderful place to have that knowledge, but we need to know what to do with it. For a lot of believers, man, they know a lot of the Word of God. They read it all the time. They study it all the time. They memorize it. They could quote it. But if you don't have the wisdom to actually apply it, you've missed the point. God doesn't just want us to have a wealth of knowledge of God's Word. He wants us to take that knowledge and actually apply it to our life, allow it to impact the way in which we live. And this is so huge, especially in our relationship with other believers. One of the best ways to bless your relationship with other believers is allow the Word of God to dwell in you, to understand it, to know it, but then to apply it. Because God's Word has so much to say about every relationship, every circumstance, situation, problem, issue. And if we would know that and then take that and say, you know what, I'm going to put this into practice here. In this relationship that I have, this conflict that's going on, I'm going to do what God's Word tells me to do. And wow, it's going to greatly bless that relationship. Rodney Smith wrote this, What makes the difference is not how many times you have been through the Bible, but how many times and how thoroughly the Bible has been through you. You know, a lot of people, they have their, you know, I'm going to make it through the Bible in a year, and and there's nothing wrong with that at all, except when it just becomes this, you know, oh, I checked the box, I read the amount of verses or chapters that I needed to today, and now I made it through the Bible in a year. It's like, it doesn't really matter if you're making it through the Bible all the time, if the Bible's not making itself through you. If it's not changing you, if you're not applying it to your life, you've missed the point. And so we need to recognize it's not just reading it that's vital, It's actually taking its truth and living it out. So the second godly principle we should let enter into our life to practically help us treat other believers in a godly way is let the word of Christ dwell dwell in you richly and in all wisdom. I really feel like this is one of the most practical and important principles to impact and bless the relationships that we have with one another. So let me throw out three practical ways that we can do this. Yeah, great. I need to, to let the Word of Christ dwell in me more, but, but how do I do it? Well, here's three practical things that you can do. First, you need to hear it. Many times when Jesus taught, He says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying with this is the same thing I just said. If you, know, if you truly hear, you're going to do something. If you really take on board what I'm saying, then it's going to impact the way in which you live. But we need to, to hear. We need to take on board. You know, we listen to a lot of things. But the most important thing to listen to is God's Word. And sadly, for many Christians, the only time that that happens for them is on a Sunday morning. But you know what? We ourselves should be hearing the Word because we're personally invested in studying it ourselves. But we also, you know, for many of you, you got a a long commute, especially in the traffic here in Houston. What a great time to to listen to teaching, to listen, you know, to to radio stations that give great teaching of God's Word, to listen to podcasts or whatever you want to use. 
Just take in the Word of God as such a great way to help it dwell in us. Another practical thing you can do is hide it. Psalm 119.11 says this, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, that's a great, great thing that Paul brings out, or uh, David brings out here of, hey, I don't want to sin against you, Lord, so what do I do to, to stop that? I hide your word in my heart. Hiding your word in my heart has a direct impact on helping me not commit these sins. You know, in our relationship with one another, the, the problem's sin. <laughs> That's why we have conflict. That's why there's not peace. Well, well what can I do to, to stop that? Well, hide the word of God in your heart. And I think a great way to hide the word, a practical way to hide the word of God, memorize it. When you put the word of God to memory, then those verses are, are readily available to you. You're not wondering like, what am I supposed to do in this situation? And how should I treat this person right now? It's like, boom, those, those verses just come to the forefront of your mind because you've taken the time to invest in, in memorizing those things. They're right there to apply that situation. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, that comes to your mind, you realize, okay, I, I gotta shut up right now. I gotta just be someone who's listening. I gotta be careful not to get upset. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, that should really be something that I remember. What I'm about to say is gonna have a huge impact. It's either gonna add to this problem or it's gonna really, uh, take away from it. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know, these types of verses are, are very helpful when we face conflict. Another practical thing that we should do to let the word of Christ dwell in us is we need to learn how to handle it properly. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to encourage you, don't just be someone who reads the Bible. Take it a step farther. Be someone who studies it. And there's a big difference. Someone who can rightly divide it because you've invested in it, you've studied it, you discovered its meaning, you, you know what it actually says. You know what? As this verse even says, it takes diligence. And that's why a lot of people don't want to do it, because it's a harder work. It takes more investment. It takes more time. But it also brings many more benefits. So the first godly principle we should let into our life is let the peace of God rule in your heart. You do that through prayer, through thankfulness. The second one is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You can practically do it by hearing it, hiding it, and handling it the way that the Lord would want us to. The third practical principle that Paul shares with us is in verse 16. It says this, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now, this third principle is directly connected to the second one. Once you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and in all wisdom, that is what enables you to do this third challenge. But until you put the second challenge into practice, you're not capable of doing this third one. So some people jump to this third one. It's, oh, yeah, I want to teach and I want to admonish and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to do. But if Christ's word isn't dwelling in you, you got nothing to teach. Nothing to admonish. You're not going to be doing this. And so we got to make sure we understand that these two go hand in hand. The Greek word translated teaching means to impart instruction, to instill doctrine, 
to explain or expound a thing. The Greek word translated admonish means to warn or give notice to beforehand, especially of danger or evil, to correct by discipline. So these two words are, you know, both, they're both very important things, but they do have a, a difference. There's a difference between admonishing and teaching. Admonishing is, is more on the, the negative side, I guess you could say, focusing more on warning people, focusing more on the discipline that needs to happen, whereas teaching is more of a positive thing where it's a, an explaining and expounding of biblical truth. Now, both of these are, are very important for us to do for one another. But the only way that it's going to happen, the only way that I can have the ability to teach you something that is biblical, to admonish you, to give you some kind of warning from God's Word, is if I've taken the time to let the Word of Christ dwell in me. And if I haven't done that, I don't have much to share. If I haven't done that, maybe what I do share isn't even right or biblical or godly. Maybe my admonition or warning is inaccurate or my teaching is false because I haven't taken the time to actually let this sink in and impact me personally. And I think this is why so often we get together and this doesn't happen. Because you're not going to be motivated to share with people something that you don't actually take time to invest in yourself. If you have nothing to say, you're probably not going to say anything. <laughs> you know, it's like If you've been spending time with the Lord all week and He's showing you wonderful things from His Word, you're far more likely when you get together with other believers to be like, man, I want to encourage you with what the Lord is encouraging me with. Let me share this you know, verse that God has spoken to me. and you know, God's really warned me in this area of my life right now and I've been committing this sin and, and I've been challenged with it. You know, let me just bring that admonition to you as well. When you're doing it for yourself... You now are motivated and prepared to, to come bring those things to others. But if the whole week it's like, man, I haven't spent any time in the Word. I haven't spent any time investing in my own life. It makes you really not too you know, able or willing to share those things with others. So when we get into a large group, like on a Sunday morning, or just even one or two of us together at a different time, we should want to be able to share through teaching, share through admonition to build each other up and encourage each other. And Paul says, hey, there, there's three practical ways that we can teach and admonish one another. He says we could use it through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And these three words are, are very similar. The Greek word translated psalms means a sacred song sung to musical accompaniment, a striking or twitching with the fingers on musical strings, a psalm. Now, normally when we think of the Psalms, we think of the Psalms in the Bible, but, but ultimately they are songs written uh, for the most part by David. Some others did as well. Uh, many of them which were accompanied by music. And, and you know, we have plenty of songs that we sing as, as we get together that are accompanied by music as well. The Greek word translated hymn means a song of praise addressed to God in order to honor God. And this is very important. Notice it's the, the, the direction. It's, it's directed to God for the purpose of bringing Him honor. And the Greek word translated spiritual song means a song focused on spiritual things. So not necessarily just God. Uh, I think a, a song that you could say is a spiritual song is What a Friend We Have in Jesus. One of the, the verses in that is, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. 
all week because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's a song that, that brings out a spiritual thing, prayer. It's a necessity, the importance of it, what happens when we don't utilize it. And so it's not necessarily just a song singing about God, but it does bring an important spiritual truth that is important to understand. So all three of these words are speaking about singing songs about God, for God, or you're singing about spiritual things. And, you know, one of the main things that should motivate this kind of singing is at the end of this verse. Notice we're told, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, songs of worship, songs of praise are ultimately and should be ultimately a response. It's a response to who God is, a response to what God has done for us. And so they should really come from the heart from a heart that recognizes the kind of grace that has been poured out upon him. You know, when I see the grace of God and what he's done for me and that I don't deserve, I don't earn, but he's given me all this stuff. He sacrificed himself for me. Now there's something within my heart that wants to respond. I want to respond to who God is. I want to respond to what he's done and all the grace that he's demonstrated to me. And I know singing songs of worship to God That's a wonderful way to connect with other believers. You know, the best thing that unifies us is when we come together and focus on the main thing that we have in common, Jesus. You know, so often when we spend so much time debating and talking and dwelling on things that, you know, we don't have in common, when really the majority of our time should be, well, let's really focus on the most important thing, which is Jesus, but it's also the thing that we actually have in common as believers, the thing that unites us together, the thing that helps bring peace to our relationship when we keep that as the main thing that we have when we come together. Because too often we spend so much time discussing things that aren't bad to discuss, But when that's the only thing that we're discussing is politics or sports or, you know, movies or or whatever it is that, you know, kind of occupies so much of our discussion time and Jesus is never involved in that conversation, it's not good for us. And we wonder, man, why are we getting so heated and why do we have these issues with each other as well? Because we haven't focused on the thing that we actually have in common. The thing that's so important, Jesus Christ. And if we'd spend more of our time teaching and admonishing and singing and encouraging each other in that... What a difference it would make in our relationships. What a difference it would make in the peace of our relationship. The third godly principle Paul gives us is let the body of Christ encourage you greatly through teaching, admonition, and songs. Now, in order to apply this principle, yeah, I recognize that we need to be together to teach, admonish, sing. Well, yeah, exactly. It can't happen unless you're with other people. You can't teach someone if you're all by yourself. You can't admonish them if you're all by yourself. You can't sing with others if you're all by yourself. And this is why the Bible commands us in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Notice here that the author is saying, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. 
Some people don't value or don't think it's important to get together with other believers, and sadly we have many of them in the body of Christ, you know, the kind of lone ranger mentality. And I understand some people feel they're justified in that because they've been wounded, maybe by someone in ministry or by someone in a church, and, well, I'm never going to another church for the rest of my life. It's just going to be me and God alone. All I need is me, God, the Bible. I don't need anyone else. And, and you get those people with that mindset, but it's not a biblical one. I get that you're hurt and you need to get deal with those hurts and you need to get through those things, but you know, avoiding the body of Christ is not the answer. We need one another. And when we don't come together, we cannot teach each other. We cannot admonish each other. We cannot worship with one another. And when that happens, it robs us. It robs us of so much that God wants to do through the time that we're together with other believers. So the first godly principle we should let in our life is let the peace of God rule in your heart. Do it through prayer and thankfulness. Second, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Hear it, hide it, handle it. Third, let the body of Christ encourage you greatly. And you do that practically by regularly spending time with other believers. Well, the fourth and final godly principle that Paul shares with us is in verse 17. It says this, And whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When Paul says, whatever you do, he's speaking of everything. Whatever encompasses it all. And sometimes we we don't really want to encompass it all when the next words are, do it all, ultimately, in what? The name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul is saying everything we should do we do should be connected to Jesus. It should be done for Jesus. It should be done ultimately by the empowering of Jesus. It should be done because he requires it. He commands it. And we want to bring honor and glory to him through it. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the mindset of both of these statements. Whatever it is you're doing, ultimately do it in the name of Jesus. Do it for the glory of God. William Barclay said this, One of the best tests of any action is, can we do it calling upon the name of Jesus? One of the best tests of any word is, can we speak it and in the same breath name the name of Jesus? Can we speak it, remembering that he will hear? If a man brings every word and deed to the test of the presence of Jesus Christ, he will not go wrong. Man, this is such an important test to do in our relationship with one another. That before we speak a word, that before we do an action, that we need to come back and ask, you know what? Jesus is going to hear this. Jesus is going to see this. You know, we have sometimes, you know, in the body of Christ, those bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? But, you know, hey, would this bring glory to Jesus? Would this bring honor to Jesus? Would he be pleased with what I'm about to say? Would he be pleased with what I'm about to do? And if the answer is no, guess what? Don't do it. You know how many problems that would solve if we actually stop to just in our mind think of this real quickly before we open our mouth and speak, before we acted, if we just said, you know what, would this bring glory to God? Would he be pleased by this? Would he be blessed by this? And if I know, no, he will not, if I would just stop right there and not say those words, if I would just stop right there and not commit that act, 
man, how different our relationships with one another would be. Paul says there's something else we should do as well. Verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So everything we do should be to the glory of God, but it should also come from a heart of thanksgiving towards God. You know, sometimes we're we're willing to do things for God, but we do it the wrong way, with the wrong heart. You know, it's a heart of resentfulness, or a heart of obligation. All right, Lord, you told me I have to, so I'm just going to do it. I don't want to do it. I surely don't want to do it towards this person, but I'm just going to do it anyway because you tell me to. And instead of really coming from a heart of really thanksgiving, a recognition, Lord, look at all you've done for me. Look what all you did to make peace possible with me. And so as I seek to, to do these things for you, it's coming from a heart of I want to. I'm grateful that I get the opportunity to because of all that you've done for me instead of, oh, I have to do this. I don't want to do this. And it changes everything. You know, we don't like it when people try to do things for you with the wrong attitude, the wrong motive. God wants us to have that thankfulness in our approach. So the fourth godly principle we should let into our life is let everything be done for God's glory with thanksgiving. You know, I think one of the practical things that we can do to help apply this final practical thing is that we need to maybe change our perspective a little bit on what we see as spiritual and practical. Oftentimes we make a distinction between what we view as a spiritual thing versus what we view as just kind of a a practical thing thing. You know, we'll conclude, hey, ministry is a church. Man, if you're teaching kids or, you know, you're worshiping God, leading with the worship team, you're, 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 you're welcoming and greeting, you're serving in some capacity, that's spiritual stuff. And that's good. But the things I do at home, like cook or clean, the things I do at work, that's just practical stuff. Now, the problem with the distinction is that we often think that only those things that are done at church are spiritual, and therefore we conclude that those are the only things that are really for God. Well, the things that I do at church, those are the things that I do for God, and I'm fulfilling what Paul is saying. You know, hey, do everything for the Lord. Well, no, you're just doing the things that you do at church for the Lord. But what about the things that you do at home? What about the things that you do at work? What about you do in every other setting of your life? Are you willing to do those things for the Lord as well? Are you willing to recognize that there's not the distinction? That we should see everything as a spiritual opportunity to bring glory to God as opposed to just things at church are spiritual opportunities to bring glory to God and everything else is just practical stuff you just got to do. I knew a mom with a plaque in her kitchen that said, divine activity happens here three times a day. She recognized, hey, when I do dishes, I see that as a divine activity because I'm not just doing it for my kids. I'm not just doing it for my husband. I'm not just doing it for my family. I'm doing it for something bigger than that. I do it for Jesus. And so for me, this is a divine activity where oftentimes, well, that's just a mundane activity. That's just some practical thing that you got to do because you don't want to eat on dirty dishes instead of seeing it as something that's a spiritual opportunity to bring glory to God. When you take the things that you view as practical and do them for God's glory, all of a sudden it changes your perspective. You recognize, man, this is something spiritual. This is something that I can now do for the Lord. Your job's no longer a place where you just go to earn money. 
It's now a place that you can go to bring God glory through your hard work, through your witness, that you can see it as a mission field for you, that every week you go and you spend time and work with people, many of whom who do not know Jesus Christ, and you have that opportunity to be a witness to them. And it's not just, well, I'm just here to make money. No, you're here to bring glory to God. And you have a way to influence those people that I sure don't as a pastor, that the other people in this room don't because they don't work there. It's a special place for you that God says, I placed you here. And it's not just to earn money. Yeah, that's a practical benefit of it. But you're here to be a witness for me. You're here to bring glory to me. If you apply this to raising your kids, it's not just, well, I raised my kids because I'm their mom or their dad. No, it's something that God has entrusted to me and I want to do it to bring Him glory. And that changes the way I approach it. That changes my perspective on it. When you do things for the glory of God, it changes why you do it, how you do it, the way you view that particular thing. It's no longer just the practical, mundane thing that has to get done. It's now an expression of worship. It's now an opportunity to bring glory to the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. And everything, not just the church stuff, not just the stuff that we label as spiritual, but the stuff that we label as practical. Do it all for God's glory. And watch what happens in that. How that changes us. How that impacts our relationships. Because now as I spend time with you, that's an opportunity to glorify God. In our relationship, it's probably going to motivate me to want to teach and admonish and and sing songs focusing on the one I'm trying to bring glory to. It's going to make me want to bring peace and, and, and not choose war. Because why? I want to bring glory to God in this relationship. It's going to encourage me to let the Word of Christ dwell in me. Why? Because I know if it doesn't, I'm not bringing glory to God in the relationships that I have. And so it motivates us and enables us to do these things. So in this section on Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency demonstrated in our fellowship with other believers, Paul focuses on three main things. First, these three great positions, what we have because we're in Christ, it should motivate us and it should enable us to do what Paul's commanding us to do, and that's the fact that we are the elect of God. He has chosen us. We are holy, that we're set apart from the world to God, and that we are loved by God. Those realities should should motivate, should influence, should impact and enable us. Second, the eight godly qualities we should put on, which demonstrate these wonderful things, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing and forgiving, and most importantly, put on love. Third, don't just end there. Hey, there's great godly principles that we need to let into our life as well to help this process. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. You can practically do that through prayer, through thankfulness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by hearing that word, hiding that word in your heart, handling it properly. Let the body of Christ encourage you greatly by spending regular time with them because it's not going to happen if you don't. And let everything be done for God's glory by seeing that all you say and do as a thing that God wants you to do to bring Him glory in every situation. So if we remember our position, if we'll put these eight godly qualities into practice, and if we'll do these four principles, man, what a huge impact in a good way, it will have on our relationships with others. 
I mean, if all of us did this, I mean, imagine how different just in our church relationships would be. But think, if the body of Christ as a whole put this into practice, did this regularly, I mean, what a different place the church would be. And this is the way the Lord wants us to function. Let's pray.